Paul's ministry to the Athenians. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by a man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all man life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. An image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Please pray with me. Lord, we, we thank you that there is good news that is meant to be heard. That you are not a God who is far off, but a God who is imminent, who is with us, very near. And, and, and even that you are a God who... Dis- Although you are holy in every aspect of your being and just in that you you hate every sin, yet you still are a merciful God wanting all of us to be reconciled to you so that we might be restored to our created purpose. Then we might live with you eternally, free from the consequences of sin. Lord, I pray that you would use Paul's words and Luke's words in Acts 
to encourage us, to strengthen us. Lord, you know the needs of each person. And Lord, we know that we are spiritually nourished, we're fed, we're strengthened, we're guided by your word. And so I pray that you would work in power through your word to minister to the needs of of each person here. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things that I hear from Christians frequently is how they, they desire to grow in evangelism. In fact, there's very few Christians I've ever met who would say that they've, they're, 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 evan- they're, they're satisfied with their pursuit of evangelism, with their ability to articulate the truth, or their confidence in pursuing people. And it's something that people share that they, they, they want to grow in. In fact, just this last week, I was having a conversation with one of our missionaries on the phone, and that was as I was getting prayer requests from him, that's what he shared. It was like, I, I want to grow in, in uh, my evangelism, particularly in having opportunities, but even clarity and confidence when I'm speaking to these unbelievers in the city. And I think one of the reasons Christians struggle with evangelism is because there are, there are many popular models of evangelism, but that they're also very poor model, models of evangelism. Often, uh, the people that we would identify as evangelists, even, have ministries that look very different from the ministry that we see in the apostles and in the book of Acts. Now, frequently, the methods used to try and reach people with the gospel are manipulative, or they're the deceitful, or they're just obnoxious and rude, sometimes even downright false or silly. And so how do we know if our approach to evangelism is good, if it's healthy, if it's productive, or if it's harmful? Well, I think one way that we can get clarity in that is just to look at how did the apostles themselves approach evangelism in the book of Acts. Because it's a record of how they went out from Christ and proclaimed the good news to all peoples. And so... Even here in Acts 17, we have one of the greatest passages on evangelism in Paul's mission to the Athenians. A very simple outline uh, of the passage can be found. It begins with Paul's engagement with the Athenians. He, He begins conversation. He pursues them. He looks for these conversations to share the gospel. And then when he gets an opportunity, he explains to the Athenians Uh, essentially, who God is and why they need to repent and believe in him. And then in verses 32 to 34, we have a brief explanation of of the effect that Paul had on the Athenians in his ministry to them. So let's begin with Paul's engagement with the Athenians in verses 16 through 21. In verse 16, it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them, referring to his, his companions who were were left behind in Thessalonica. It says his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Again, verse 16 reminds us again that, that Paul has left behind his friends and they'll return to him. And so it, it's significant that this is the first time in all of Paul's ministry where he's alone, at least since he was sent out as a missionary from the church in Antioch. And so it's interesting what he chooses to do at this time. While he's familiarizing himself with the surroundings, it says as, as he saw all the idols that were present in Athens, it provoked his spirit. 
Uh, the word provoked is actually a fairly rare word. It means to be agitated, to be stirred up inwardly, to be inwardly aroused. In fact, our English word paroxysm uh, comes from this Greek word. So it's a very strong emotional word. And so given the context, it means that Paul was either angered or he was grieved by seeing the prevalence of idolatry within Athens. And there was a significant amount of idolatry in Athens. The Roman governor Pliny said that that the city contained over 3,000 public statues. Just 3,000 public, not counting private. Uh, The Greek geographer Pausanias said that Athens had more images than all of the rest of Greece put together. And a popular Roman writer, Petronius, sneered that it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. So this was a city that was just loaded with idols, an idol on every corner, in every driveway. And remarkably, Paul's response to his paroxysm, his his agitation, was he responded by rationally engaging with the Jews and the Gentiles. He, he didn't, he, he wasn't controlled by his anger and grief. He responded rationally, right? It says, so he reasoned. And this is a good example of how Christians should respond to strong emotions. Strong emotions can be good, but we shouldn't be controlled by them. First, recognize that Paul's emotional response, again, it's good and it's healthy. Seeing sin should provoke us. We should not feel comfortable or even inwardly tolerant of sin. It should bother us whenever we hear bad language or we hear error, when we see uh, violence or theft, it should bother us. Like, Like Peter says of Lot, Abraham's nephew, that his righteous soul was tormented when he saw the wickedness surrounding him in the city of Sodom. 2 Peter 2.8 And so Christians should have emotional responses, even strong responses, but we shouldn't be controlled by these responses. Instead, when we have strong emotional responses of, of anger or grief or fear, we need to be controlled by truth, by reason. Right? And we see Paul responding rationally here. And this principle is emphasized in other scriptures. James 1 says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Proverbs 16 says, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than him who takes a city. It's not easy to take a city by yourself. But a person who can rule their spirit has more power than that. So again, it's not wrong to feel strong emotions, but it's wrong to be controlled by them, to let them overcome us and direct us in our decision making. So Paul reacts again to his strong emotions by reasoning. He doesn't lash out in anger or even in tears. He reasons. We see him following the same pattern of ministry. He, he's speaking with the Jews and the Gentiles, 
the, the, believe, the God-fearing Gentiles in the synagogue. That's what he, he does in every city if there's a synagogue there. But he's also engaging in people with uh, unbelievers in the marketplace. Uh, it, he especially uh, says, reason with the chance comers. Literally, those that met him. Right? So he would engage in conversation as, as people would come along and start up a conversation with him. And he would continue that conversation. Or, or maybe he would begin a conversation with them and they would respond to him. But it wasn't like he had some strategy. It was just they came to him. And it was a, it was a comfortable conversation. Uh, and many people, I think when they read this passage, assume that what Paul's doing is he's standing up on a platform in the middle of the marketplace, the, the ancient grocery store, and just yelling at people, telling them that they're sinners and they need to repent. And if they don't repent, they're going to hell. But it's very different, actually, from what's happening. And what the, what, the reason when they think that is because they're imposing their the, the, the modern image of, uh, of contemporary street preachers and what they did and assume that that must be what Paul was doing also. But Paul wasn't yelling at anybody. He was just having conversations with people who happened to pass by. He wasn't being intrusive or disruptive. He was just chatting. Now, we also need to recognize that the, the, the marketplace or the agora, where Paul engaged these Athenians, it was it's kind of like a mall of philosophy. Uh, many people would set up you know, their, uh, we'll call them booths, where they would teach just what they thought about the world, and they would give their worldview. And, and people would go there because they'd want to window shop, so to speak, these different philosophies to hear. Maybe this person's got a better view of life that would better help me live the life that I want to live. And so they would go there and just hang out there and listen to people talk. So it was, was kind of like a, a daily conference on religion. So if you want to know about all these different religions, imagine that there was a religious conference in downtown Portland, and then you could just go and Pick and choose whatever seminar you wanted to attend to and hear what these professors of religion would teach on. And, and people would just go to listen to whomever they liked. And so Paul here is not obnoxiously intruding on them, but as they come to him and engage him in conversation, he's very clear with the truth that he presents to people who are seeking truth. Essentially, he's just selling what people are looking to purchase. Paul's doing nothing more bold, nothing more shocking than a person who wanted to set up a produce booth at the local farmer's market. If we saw a produce booth, we wouldn't be shocked by that. Oh, a new produce booth. Um, now, if they came and sold kumquats, okay, that might be a little odd, maybe a little different, but it wouldn't be, you wouldn't call the police. You wouldn't yell at them. You would ask, well, what are kumquats? What do I, what do, I do with these? That's essentially what Paul's doing. He has a new teaching, something they're not familiar with, but he's not, he's not disruptive. He was rational, and he engaged people in a very natural manner. So these people wanted to engage him in conversation. Luke tells us in verse 18 that the, the Paul particularly engaged uh, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Just a brief explanation of their philosophies. The Epicureans were, they were essentially deists. Uh, they believed in the gods, but they thought that the gods were basically aloof from everything that happened in the world. They, um, they didn't really care what 
humans did. And so their philosophy, uh, the, the philosophy of the Epicureans, uh, was basically the best life is to find pleasure. Do what, good feel, do what feels good to you. What's right for you is what's right. That's what's moral, what you feel like doing. So very similar to the philosophy that is prevalent in American uh, worldviews. The Stoics were pantheists. So they basically said that, that God was the world and the world was God. And everything essentially was governed by fate. And so the best thing, the way you could live the best life is, is not to be affected by what comes against you. Uh, the, that virtue was defined by rationalism and self-control. And they, they taught actually that, that virtue was its own reward. If you live virtuously, you're going to have good things happen to you. Vice is going to have its own punishment. You live uh, wickedly, it's going to, you're going to reap what you sow. And so these two uh, groups of philosophers were interested in what Paul had to say, but, but others were dismissive. They said, oh, what's this idle babbler got to say? And that, that phrase babbler actually means seed picker, like a, like a, like a pigeon that would fly into the marketplace and just pick at seeds. Their point was, he doesn't have any real coherent worldview, um, but he's just picking and choosing what he wants to believe. They didn't understand what Paul was trying to share with them. Some recognized that he was teaching about the God of the Jews, and so they, they identify him as a preacher of foreign religions. And, and these people were interested enough to hear more, so they, they actually invite him to go teach in the Areopagus. The Areopagus literally means the Hill of Mars. And it was the seat of the Athenian court which decided some of the, the biggest questions on religion of the day. In fact, you might recall from your, your history of books that Socrates was brought before the Areopagus and he was condemned for corrupting the youth with his philosophy and he eventually committed suicide to hold fast to his philosophy because he was rejected by the people of Athens. Uh, the judges or the Areopagites would sit in open air upon these seats that were hewn out of the rock up a flight of stone steps. And they, this would oversee the Agora, the marketplace below. And, but unlike Paul, or sorry, unlike Socrates, Paul isn't being put on trial this is actually uh, an invitation to speak, to share more. Um, it would be similar to if somebody uh, heard you teaching, they invited you to, to teach at the Shepherds Conference or the Gospel Coalition Conference or uh, T4G or whatever it might be. That, that, that They want to hear more, but it's a big public gathering. So there's going to be a lot of people around. So he's going from just this small seminar to being like a keynote address on what he believes. So it's an amazing opportunity that has been given to Paul. And so, what's he going to say? When he has the freedom to just share everything he wants to share with these Athenians. Well, let's look at this in verses 22 and to 31. His explanation to the Athenians of his teaching. It says, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. 
So it's, it's remarkable that Paul begins his message by affirming where they're right. In fact, it's the very thing that provokes him. It's the very thing he actually begins with. But he affirms them in that they are, he says, you're being very religious. It's a, it's a positive statement. So rather than lashing out at what angers him, Paul uses it as a starting place to address the audience. Again, he doesn't start by just pointing out their idolatry and, and, and showing them, hey, you do not realize that you have broken the first two commandments. And because of that, you're going to be judged. So repent. That's not what he does. He starts instead by saying, you're very religious. It's a, it's a positive thing. And then he uses that religiosity as a platform to then explain what they need to know. Again, this is very similar to the way Jesus addresses the woman of Samaria in John 4. He, he begins by pointing out to her her thirst, her need. And he knows when he meets her, he's Jesus, her sin. But he doesn't start there. Instead, he starts with saying, I've, I've come to meet a need that you have. Tells her he has living water that he offers her. And Paul similarly starts by offering to meet the Athenians' needs by addressing their ignorance of the unknown God. They have a God they worship that's unknown to them. So Paul says, I'm here to tell you about this unknown God so he would no longer be unknown. He's, he's meeting a need. He's filling in the blanks in their understanding of this God. So you've got to see, he, and he's, he's consistent, he's not manipulative, he's not deceptive. Because they don't know this God. And so likewise, when we share Christ with, uh, with people, we want to make it very clear that we're trying to help them. We're not there to condemn them. We're not there to assault them, to shame them. We're there to help them. Now, in the process of that, we might need to tell them what's wrong, just like a physician might need to tell his patient that where their problem is so he can offer the right medication. But the goal is to help. The people we share Christ with need to know that. And that's why Paul starts where he does. Even though it's the very thing that angers him or grieves him to the point of paroxysm, yet that's what he, where he starts in affirming them. And if we're not sure you know, what a person's need is, the best thing to do is just ask questions. Try to understand what, what, what they're living for, what their, what their needs are. If they have a physical need or... A material need. And if, if you can tie that to a, a spiritual need that they have. Now, on the surface, these questions we might ask a person, they might just sound like small talk. But if we're doing it right, we're being strategic. We're looking to find out what is it, because everybody needs Christ. And so what longing does this person have that only Christ can present to them? Is it a removal of guilt? Is it shame? Is it insecurity? Is it, is it fear? Is it hope? Peace in their soul? Are they, are they just wanting to be satisfied and they're just looking in all the wrong places? And that doesn't take too long to figure out like what drives a person. But this is often why ministering to family members or coworkers, people we work with, we see day in and day out is, is easier because we know what they want. And so we just can just say, hey, I see you're trying to achieve this. 
But you can never be satisfied in these things. Only Christ can satisfy you. Now, they may reject it at that point, but they can see that you're trying to meet a need. You're not just trying to get them to agree with you, which is how so many people see evangelists and Christians when they're trying to share their faith. Christians will get into an argument. Um, again, because we want to be, tr- we want to be, we want to communicate truth. But again, the goal is to win their soul to convince them that Christ is what they need because it is what they need. Now, you aren't, you're not going to see a, a physician is going to, if he's trying to convince a patient that they need to take medication. You know, there may be pushback, but he's again, he needs to. He's not just going to try and win the argument for the sake of winning the argument. It's so that the patient would eventually receive what he has to offer. So after recognizing the, the spiritual need, address, addressing that, that Paul's coming to inform them about their unknown God, he then fills in the gaps with their understanding of truth. Right? So he's, he's letting them know, this is why I'm going to talk about God to you, because this is the God you need to know. He offers them knowledge of this unknown God. He says, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The man who made the world, sorry, the God, (laughs) that's different. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So he begins by telling them this unknown God has created everything. And because he's created all things, he has in need of nothing. In speaking of temples and houses of worship, God says in Isaiah 66, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What then is the house that you could build for me? What's the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Like, I made all this stuff. You're not giving me anything I can't make for myself, is the point. I'm God. I'm not impressed. Even by grand temples. And speaking of sacrificial offerings, God says in Psalm 50, Every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills. And all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry... I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. The point is, God doesn't need anything from us. It's we need Him. That's what people need to know. God isn't looking for strokes. He doesn't need to be affirmed. He doesn't need to be worshipped. We need to worship Him. Because that's what we were created for. And that's what Paul wants them to understand. Paul's preaching what's known as the doctrine of the aseity or the self-existence of God. It means that God isn't dependent upon anything. He doesn't need anything to sustain him. And that's why this is an attribute that exists in God alone. Nothing else has aseity, only God. So in contrast to everything else in creation, God's existence is everlasting. It never started. It will never end. And therefore, everything else in creation owes its existence to Him. Its allegiance to Him. It, 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 it should honor Him by worshiping Him. In fact, this is the primary attribute of God that's manifested in the name 
when he revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. When he said, Moses asked, what, what should I say, what God should I say you are to the Israelites? And he says, Yahweh, which means essentially, I am that I am. My existence is. It didn't begin. I'm the source of everything. And so with this attribute, Paul is subtly confronting the air of the Stoics that he's talked to and the Epicureans. And notice that Paul is he's not confronting their error in an attacking manner. He's just straightforward telling them the truth. He doesn't call out the Epicureans. He doesn't call out the Stoics. In fact, the only time he cites uh, other teachers, it's, it's in a positive way. He's not trying to destroy them. He's trying to help fill in the gaps particularly what they need to know about this unknown God. The second thing he tells them about God is that he is sovereign over all peoples. Look at verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. This is a very important verse for those who are seeking to develop a theology of race. Because it tells us what the Bible teaches about race. It affirms that all men belong to the same race. But we all have different ethnicities. We come from different nations, different ethnos. We're Gentile nations. The word Gentile is ethnos. We have different languages. We have different amounts of melanin, different food preferences, different music interests. But we become, we're from the same race. There is... Biblically, there's only one race of men. And there's just differences within that race. Different nations. And Paul says to the Athenians that this God who is the one who determines how long these nations, these people groups last, how big they get, when they rise, when they fall. And so this... Doctrine is really critical even in our understanding of the book of Acts as a whole. Because it's been one of the major emphases is that God is not the God of the Jews only. The Messiah is the Messiah of the Gentiles also. And so he has, been, he has sent his teachers out into the world, his apostles, to tell all the nations of who he is that they might come to know him. Right? He says in verse 27 that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And this is the third characteristic of God that Paul informs the Athenians of. That he's accessible. That he's present. You can know him. So even though he's transcendent, transcendent he's knowable. So this God that has remained unknown to the Athenians can now be known. Even though he's self-existent, sovereign, and transcendent, He's imminent. That means he's present. In fact, he's omnipresent. As Paul says, he's not actually far from each one of us. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. This is exactly what David said in Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, 
Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. So God is imminent. He's present. And so after establishing this transcendent nature of God, Paul then can now logically address the sin that's provoked him. Because now they're going to have a context for why their idolatry is wrong. Previously, they would have no clue. They, would, they thought they were doing the right thing in creating idols. That's why they were so prevalent in Athens. Now that he's taught them about this God who's created all things and doesn't need, a, doesn't need idols. He can't even be worshipped as an idol. He doesn't need temples. Now they can understand why the idolatry is wrong. So you have to marvel at just the, the graciousness of Paul's words here. He says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He's confronting a, a grievous sin, but he's doing it in the most gracious, straightforward way possible. This is just it's a, this is an illogical way to worship this God whom you must worship. So he acknowledged that even though their idolatry is wrong and it's provoking, he knows that it's performed in ignorance. Of course, now they're not ignorant of it. But again, I know you didn't understand this. I know you you didn't know this God. Now you do. And so now you do know this God. There is a way to respond to this God. You need to know that you need to repent from your idolatry and be reconciled to him. That's what he says. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. This is the, the application of Paul's message, the, the so what. He's informed them uh, what he teaches. He, he's informed them of the, the, the nature of God. In light of that knowledge of God, now this is how they need to respond. Because if they don't repent, they will be judged by Christ for the rebellion when he returns. It says, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul concludes his message simply by citing the evidence of his claims. This man is risen from the dead, proving that he really was the Messiah, that he will judge the world. Now, Paul probably knew that in saying that, he was running counter to the fundamental beliefs of the Epicureans and the Stoics and so many other Athenian philosophies. But he's nevertheless very faithful in confronting their error. And he does so because if they continue in their ignorance, and if they don't repent, they will be judged. They'll be condemned. And when he comes to judge them, they might recognize, oh, you're Jesus. You're the one that Paul preached on. I've heard of you. I know who you are. That's, a, that's what they might try to say to Christ on Judgment Day. But if they have not repented and believed, that Jesus is just going to look at them and say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Matthew seven twenty one and 23. And notice when Paul says this, it's not a threat. It's not a manipulative tactic. He's not asking four-year-olds how many of them want to go to hell. As if anybody's going to say, you know, that they, they want to. He's, he's not tricking them. He's just honestly being straightforward, warning them 
of what the Bible teaches. He's just simply presenting facts. And he tells the Athenians what the right response is. In fact, this is the same response that's given throughout the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. They need to repent and they need to believe. Right? Matthew 3.1, when John the Baptist first began his ministry, it says he was preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So even before Jesus began his ministry, that was the message of the kingdom. Then in Mark 1, when Jesus began his ministry, after John was arrested, it says he was proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So the gospel message is repent and believe. Mark 6.12, when Jesus first sent out his disciples, he says, it says that they went out and proclaimed everywhere that people should repent. When Peter first preached his sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and when the Jews heard that they had crucified their Messiah, it says they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remarkably also, the very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 14, when an angel goes throughout the earth proclaiming the eternal gospel, this is what it says, Revelation 14, 6. I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, this is his eternal gospel, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. The gospel is a call to repent and be reconciled to God. And that happens through faith in Christ. And so Paul says here, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Well, let's notice how the effect of his message upon the Athenians, verses 32 and 34. Luke briefly tells us how they responded to Paul's message. First of all, it says one group mocked him when they heard of the resurrection. Another group expressed a little more interest. They say that they want to hear more, but they're not yet committing themselves. They, they need some more information. And then a third group, it says, believed and joined him. He specifically calls out Dionysius, the Areopagite, which tells us he was one of those leading philosophers that sat in the council that would assess these various religions. So he's probably one of the teachers in this great mall of philosophy in the Athenian Agora. And he was persuaded by Paul's reasoning. He was convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. He believed in this God and in his judge, Christ. He also tells us that a woman named Damaris also professed faith in Christ. And so, again, this just shows us that the truth of what Jesus said, you know, that, that, that evangelism is, is like fishing. I remember he told his disciples when he called them, Away from their nets. He says, I will make you fishers of men. Right? If you go fishing, chances are, you know, you might get skunked. You might not catch anything. But you might catch some fish. But very few people, whenever they go out to fish, are going to be like Justin and catch everything that they 
throw Bay in for. Or it's like shooting half-court shots. Some of those shots are going to go in, but very few. Unless, of course, you're Devin, then you might make every one of them. But, but very few people are going to get good responses when they share the gospel. And sometimes people are going to respond, and they're going to believe. The shots are going to go in. The fish is going to bite. But most of the time, you're going to get rejected. And not to be discouraged by that. It happened to Christ. It happened to Paul. And it's going to happen to us. And so we just, we just need to be faithful with the opportunities God provides and trust Him with the results. So just in summary of this text of uh, Paul's evangelistic ministry to the Athenians, he begins in, in, in just examining his surroundings, and even though he's provoked by seeing so much of their sin, just like we are as we look at just the perversity in the world around us, he's not controlled by that emotional response, instead he rationally engages with people sharing the truth of what the Bible teaches. He uses natural, unoffensive means to engage people in conversation. And this leads to an incredible opportunity for him to share publicly to, to probably hundreds of people. And what he preaches is the character of God primarily. He teaches that he's creator, that he's sovereign, that he's accessible. But, but at the same time, because he is all those things, he commands all people everywhere to repent and to worship him. And remarkably, in Athens, Paul faces no persecution in the synagogue or even after preaching in the Areopagus. Which is remarkable, again, because he gets persecuted almost every other town he goes to. Now, there is some mocking, but again, it's, it's not the violent persecution that he's had before. And what's also remarkable is this is the last we hear of Paul's ministry to the Athenians. Now, presumably some sort of church was founded, but Luke doesn't give us any more details. In fact, we don't hear about anything else in the Bible about the Athenians. This is it. That's pretty stunning because Athens was the intellectual center of the Western world. Like it was the world university, so to speak. And yet we hear nothing about a church there. Nothing about the Christians there. And, and it's possible this is just a subtle nod to what Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, 26. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have chosen us to believe even though we weren't noble-minded, we weren't wise, we weren't powerful according to worldly standards, but that you nevertheless had mercy upon us. You brought an evangelist to our life to help us see what the Bible teaches. God, I even think about in my own salvation how you used a fourth grade Sunday school teacher to teach on Revelation who probably didn't even know what she was talking about and yet you used that effort 
to open my eyes to believe. And I thank you for using all the people that you have used in my brothers' and sisters' lives to open their eyes that they might know you. And I pray that you would likewise use us with our family members, with our co-workers, with our neighbors. Help us to, to have wisdom to how to engage in these conversations, to know how, what to share and to have clarity in what we share so that people would truly believe and they would recognize our desire for them to find their satisfaction in you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.